You are now entering the transit zone. Member for Clark. Deputy Speaker, I move that this bill be now read a second time. Deputy Speaker, Australians' trust in politicians and the political process is at an all-time low, and for good reason, because due to this country's weak political donation laws, voters don't even know who they're voting for. Indeed, millions of dollars in political donations remain undisclosed each year, and Australians are routinely left in the dark about who's bankrolling their current and prospective elected representatives. Deputy Speaker, to restore this dwindling trust, we urgently need significant reform, starting today with a deep overhaul of our political donations framework. We also need an independent Federal Integrity Commission with teeth, more comprehensive media freedom laws and better protections for whistleblowers. This is what the community demands, and it should be something that receives bipartisan support. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margaret Kingston in Comboy, New South Wales. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beerpai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Well, Margot, it's been quite a few weeks since we chatted together in the zone. And what a time this is in Australian and international politics. Almost eclipsing, but not quite, the ongoing coronavirus pandemic and those continuing deaths, especially in aged care. We have seen and heard Scott Morrison's and Peter Dutton's over-the-top China attacks on Albanese. A shutdown of the train system in Sydney, complete with union bashing. Morrison presided over legislative train wrecks in federal parliament recently, including around religious discrimination and the failure to submit a federal ICAC bill. Effectively, the next federal election campaign has begun. Just a brief budget session of parliament to come. The PM's visual propaganda photo-video-op stunts from gnocchi-making to hair-shampooing and welding will only increase in tempo and intensity. An invasion of the Ukraine by Russia is still unfolding, with already widespread destruction and many civilian deaths, including children, and massive once-in-a-century floods in Queensland and northern New South Wales. Is febrile the right word, Margot? Meanwhile, on another planet, Andrew Wilkie, the Federal Independent Member for Clark in Tasmania, after revelations about Independent Zali Stegall's amended donations return, recently introduced into our federal parliament his Cleaning Up Political Donations Bill. Andrew Wilkie, welcome to the Transit Zone. G'day, Peter, and g'day, Margot. Nice to see you again. Well, we appreciate your making the time, Andrew, because well, this is a very interesting and fraught time in Australian politics. We are seeing the rise of the Voices for Independence, of course, and much debate about political donations and political advertising, and more broadly, political integrity. So as you look out from your office and see the activism of independence across Australia, alongside intense partisan competition, replete with its freewheeling propaganda, is this potentially a good time to bring about the basic democracy reforms that you're trying to introduce into Parliament? Well, they certainly are very interesting times. Uh, I think it would be fair to say there's an unprecedented level of dismay, even anger in some quarters, with the state of politics uh, in this country, with the behaviour of some politicians, uh, with the stand of some political parties. Uh, you know, these are these are very challenging days. Uh, it's it's unsurprising we're seeing uh, an increased focus on independence in the parliament and independent candidates. 
And it's certainly a, a very appropriate time for me to be pushing, uh, along with my crossbench colleagues, for political donation reform uh, in this country, along with other integrity measures like an integrity uh, commission, whatever other integrity measures we can possibly get up. I, if we're going to restore the public's confidence in our political system, then we need such integrity measures. So last, uh, well, Monday last week, I, uh, I moved the grandly called the Commonwealth Electoral Amendment Cleaning Up Political Donations Bill 2022, uh, which has the support, uh, oh, I think of just about all or maybe all of my crossbench colleagues, but it remains to be seen whether the parties will have uh, have anything to do with it. Andrew, you, like Helen Haynes, I think, have a, a policy of declaring donations of over a 1,000 in real time and donations of over 5,000 in seven days. A lot of people say they've got to be private, otherwise people won't donate. But you and Helen, you particularly, are extremely well ensconced in the seat of Clark, formerly a Labor seat, with a 22% margin. So can I ask you how you managed to fund your campaigns with a, a transparent disclosure? Well, indeed, uh, any donations over $1,000 are declared um, as quick as we can get them up on the on the website. So it might take a day or two, you know, if it comes in over the weekend, but it's, but it's virtually real time. And look, donors know that's the deal. Um, and it uh, doesn't happen very often, but if, if someone's offering more than $1,000, uh, you know, we, we say to them, are you okay with that being disclosed? And, and if they're not happy, uh, I don't accept the donation. Um, top of my head, I can't think of a single donor that's balked at that. But having said that, there ain't many. Uh, if people go to andrewwilkie.org right now and drill down into the website, you'll see a, a fairly short list uh, of donors. I don't accept a lot of money because I don't need a lot of money. Whereas a political party will routinely spend half a million dollars or more in a lower house seat. My campaign is coming up for the probably May election. Um, I'll only spend about a hundred only $100,000 or a bit more. It's a fraction of what my uh, so-called colleagues will spend. And in fact, most of that will be recouped through uh, Commonwealth funding reimbursement from the Electoral Commission. I work in a different, a totally different way to the political parties. And uh, I don't know the exact figures, but I've heard it said that um, for Dave Sharma to beat Karen Phelps, the Liberal Party might have spent a few million dollars. Uh, my mate Adam Bent, Greens member for Melbourne at his re-election in 2013. I, I hear the Greens spent over a million dollars in the seat of Melbourne. Unfortunately, we live in a country where money buys political power. You won in 2010. You're pre-Cathy McGowan. You came third and won on preferences. In every election since, you have increased your vote and you are now ultra safe. How did you do that without spending big money? What is your style of politics Cheap and effective. <laughs> it is fairly uh, fairly cheap. Uh, mind you, $100,000 is an enormous amount of money for just about everyone in this country. But, uh, look, I got elected through some good fortune and a very favourable preference flow. I, I was elected initially on about 21% of the primary vote, uh, just ahead of the Greens candidate. Uh, when they redistributed uh, the votes, most Greens preferences flowed to me. I then leapfrogged Liberal most liberal preferences flowed to me and I leapfrogged Labor, a very unusual set of circumstances. But since then, um, I have had a, a very simple policy in the office that we do everything we can to represent and help our community. And if we do that, if we do our job, the election will look after itself. 
This might sound like a statement of the blinding obvious. Just do your job and do your best to do it with integrity and sincerity and the votes look after themselves. But, you know, I look at, I look at other candidates in other seats. Uh, you know, they think they can play party games and carry on for three years and then stand in a supermarket a month before polling day and introduce themselves to the electorate. They miss the obvious. I, I would be probably the, just about the lowest spending incumbent in the country and I'm the safest non-government seat and the second safest of all House of Representatives seats. I've, I've got this magic formula. I just do my job. It's very interesting that you find that your Peter Andrews, your Kathy McGowans, your Tony Windsors, sure, you need a fair bit of money to get over that first hurdle. But if you do genuinely try to listen to your people and represent them, you just don't have any trouble after that. Uh, well, that is my story. Some people think you've got to attract all this money to your electorate as well. And, you know, it's all about pork barrelling. But it's interesting, you know, in my second term, Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister and he had 90 seats. And uh, it, they were very uh, poor days for the electorate. There, there was very little federal investment. But yet my, my vote went up at the, at the 2016 election, suggesting that for a lot of voters, uh, they're more interested in the person, the man or woman, and what they stand for in their character. Certainly that was my experience. Um, I, I was not punished at all that in my second term that uh, there was next, well, very, very little federal investment in the electorate, which is, I think, a really interesting. It suggests that this, uh, this uh, not only standing in a supermarket, a shopping centre a month before the election, not only is that a, a flawed uh, strategy, but also thinking it's all about pork barrelling, that's, that's flawed as well. The community wants politicians who care about them, represent them, follow their conscience when they vote. I suppose that's another advantage I've got. No one tells me how to vote. So every vote is a combination of um, what my community wants and what my, what my conscience is telling me. And maybe the party should allow their, uh, their representatives to, um, to follow their conscience more often. Andrew, we're in what I describe as the phony war stage of the election campaign. Margot disagrees with me. She reckons the election campaign is well and truly on. Whatever, however you describe it, we're seeing a lot of propaganda, aren't we? We're seeing a lot of, for example, about the independence, which we've touched on already, being called Labour fronts. We've got Morrison describing Albanese as the most left-wing opposition leader since Gough Whitlam, etc. The old labels, left, right, all that propaganda, that very partisan language. Looking at you and your history, you could only be described as a very eclectic politician. You had early contact with the Liberals. Uh, you have a very varied career. And then, of course, what we've just been discussing, your, your success as an independent. Putting the spotlight back on yourself, how do you describe your own political profile against some of those fairly well-worn now descriptors like left, right, Labor, Liberal, etc.? How do you see yourself? Are you a red <laughs> under the bed, Andrew? <laughs> oh, Margot. Uh Look, I, I call myself a, I call, I call myself a centrist, but of course, when you've got a whole lot of parties on the far right, you've got a a very conservative liberal and national coalition, and even a lot of the Labor parties off to the right or centre these days. It makes us centrists look like lefties, because we probably are to the left of most of them. But I think I'm I'm somewhere around the centre, which, by the way, I think is where a lot of Australians are. I mean, that probably helps to explain why I've survived this long. You know, I've got this th another theory here that the left wing of the Liberal Party 
probably the centre or the right wing of the Labor Party, the, I don't know, some of the Greens. They, around the centre, all of these parties overlap a little. I think I sit in, in, in that area there. Like it, when I analyse my vote in now the Clark electorate was Denison. You know, I reckon I take about a third of the, the old Liberal vote, about half the Green vote and about half the Labor vote, uh, which is very telling. A lot of people who fled uh, the Liberal Party way back in John Howard's day, they, I mean, they, they're quite attracted to me. It seems to me that there's a comfortable majority in the Parliament for serious climate change action and a comfortable majority in the Parliament for a strong Federal Integrity Commission, but a section of the Liberal Party will not let that happen. And and to me, that explains this explosion in safe coalition seats. So it sort of goes back to your overlap thing that this hard right fundamentalist thing, whatever it is in the Libs, could be tamed in some way, the Parliament could actually get a lot done on a bipartisan basis. I agree, Margot. The ascendant right-wing element of the government, they are out of step with majority public opinion, which is a curious thing. You know, they're they're now going to try and get re-elected even though they are so out of step with the community. And I don't know if it's uh, that they are driven by high principle. I think they're just pig-headed. Australia, I think, has an opening for almost a centrist party, maybe a bit like the old Democrats. Certainly, all of these very impressive independent candidates that are emerging, I think politically or philosophically, they line up with a great many Australians. Hopefully they succeed. And by the way, they're not a political party. This this nonsense about Climate 200. Climate 200 is a funding instrument. That's all it is. It's a funding instrument. And and I'll be upfront. If you go to my website, you'll already see I've accepted a donation of $28,000 from Climate 200. No secrets here. Uh, biggest donation I've ever, I've ever, uh, ever been offered, ever received. You know, Simon Holmes, a court, can't tell me what to do. No one tells me what to do. He looked at me, looked at my view of the world and decided he'd like to support me. It's the same with all these other candidates. No one's going to be told what to do by Simon or or anyone else. Andrew, I want to ask you a question about the very voting system we use in Australia. A question I put to Malcolm Turnbull and I got a bit of a flick off from him. It was sparked in my mind by the recent West Australian state election where we saw certain percentage numbers across the electorate and a big disconnect between those percentages and the actual seats in Parliament. And I think the Greens suffered probably most from that. You've had a bit of experience with the Hare-Clark system, looking across to New Zealand with their multi-member electorates and their list system. Do you think we do need some reform overall to avoid what we've got, bashing away at the swinging voters, perhaps a more democratic approach to voting in Australia? I think multi-member electorates, as we have for our Tasmanian lower house, a house of assembly, I think that is a a superior electoral system. It ensures that more voices, more points of view are represented in the parliament. So in Tasmania, we have uh, at the the state level, we have five electorates. Each one elects five members for a total of 25 people in the lower house. Just as an aside, that's not enough for critical mass for the lower house to work particularly well. It, it used to be 35, but it was reduced to 25 to increase the quota to try and push the Greens out of the Tasmanian parliament. It didn't work, but that's an, an aside. I, I rather like the New Zealand model where there's a single house of parliament, but within the same house, there are single member electorates and multi-member electorates all crashed together. I'm quite attracted uh, to that idea. Having said that, I'm not, I'm not too down on the current system federally because I think compulsory voting and preferential voting, it works 
pretty well. Makes it very hard for um, micro and minor parties to get someone up. I mean, Adam Bant's done a remarkable job to win and hold Melbourne. Very hard for the Greens to increase their numbers. Interestingly, it's easier for an independent to get in than the Greens, so long as we are broadly appealing uh, in the electorate. But yeah, you know, we can always do things better. Um, Andrew, I'd like to ask about how the independents operate in the parliament, because it seems to me that you have a quite a collaborative approach. And as we come to the election, there seems to be emerging a detailed honest politics agenda. There's your cleaning up political donations bill. There's Helen Haynes' political standards bill so that shock horror MPs have to have ethics and her Federal Integrity Commission bill. And there's Zali Stegall's Truth in Advertising bill. Is there any sort of move here to actually produce a big agenda that the independents can support in principle, if not every detail? Oh, look, I, I'm careful to, uh, to emphasise the point, Margot, that we're obviously not a political party. I mean, that's that's self-evident. But even our what we all pursue, it, it's more a case of we all run our own race. But when our our views on a particular issue overlap, we sort of come together and work collegiately to pursue a particular outcome. And then we sort of drift apart and do our own thing. You know, so I I'm, I'm busy on gambling reform. So I'm out there fighting the good fight on gambling reform and. And I tend to do a bit of work there with uh, Rebecca Sharkey because, you know, she's, she's ex of the Nick Xenophon crew. We all stand together, including Bob Catter, not including Craig Kelly. Of course, he's sort of the outlier. But all of us, including Bob, we stood together last week fighting the good fight for a federal integrity agency. But that's not to say that Helen Haynes, Rebecca Sharkey, Zoli Stiegel, Adam Bant, Andrew Wilkie and Bob Catter are, are, are a party in any way. And, and in fact, I get quite uncomfortable when people talk about the independence. We are all individuals. We all have our different sets of priorities. Uh, but I think, it, isn't it wonderful when you get a group of such diverse politicians from Bob Catter on the far right to, to say Adam on the far left and all of us in between, isn't that refreshing when we can come together and work collegiately in the public interest to pursue a, a, a policy outcome. Contrast that with whoever is the government and whoever is the opposition. They will always disagree no matter what it is, you know, on, on the big issues. And oppositions, I think I think Tony Abbott made this a, an art form, but it's continued ever since. Whoever's the opposition will just oppose, destroy, block, tear down, to score political points. And all it does is just piss off the community along the way. Andrew, it's not implausible, is it, that we could have a hung parliament after this next federal election? The polls seem to have the government under the pump, but who really relies on the polls? Either Morrison or Albanese may be looking for independence, for confidence and supply. Now, you were there in that crucible with Abbott and Gillard, and I think it's fair to say, push me back if I'm wrong, that you got dudded ultimately by Gillard on pokies. What advice would you give to neophyte independents arriving in Canberra as they enter those intense negotiations with a Morrison and an Albanese, perhaps seeking their backing for confidence and supply to form government? What advice would you give them as they enter into those very tricky <laughs> negotiations? The first thing I'd say is don't trust anyone. <laughs> you don't have any friends in Canberra. Everyone's just after you for what – everyone's just chasing you and being friendly to you uh, in the pursuit of their own self-interest. Uh, you know, I learnt the hard way, but I, I got a lot of time for Julia Gillard, and you know, I think she was a good prime minister and she achieved a lot of good stuff. 
But, you know, she made a, a, a written agreement with me, eight pages, a contract uh, that she would deliver on uh, meaningful uh, poker machine reform. And after 18 months, she said she wouldn't deliver on it. And uh, I think that diminished, diminished her and diminished her government. What I will say to any new colleagues on the crossbench is you don't have to do a deal. I learned back then that if you have a, a deal, a formal deal that is, you know, with a written contract, you've gone in the tent and, you, and you're pretty much taken for granted. Whereas if you have a less formal understanding with the government, they know they've got to keep you on side all the time. And uh, I, th- I, I found in the 18 months that I didn't have a deal with Julie Gillard, I felt that I had probably more influence on that government, particularly when Peter Slipper, you remember Peter Slipper, the old speaker, <laughs> he got himself in a terrible strife over um, over his uh, personal conduct and the speaker had to go hide in his office. And Gillard gave the, the greatest speech she's ever That's given. right, they've a fabulous speech, probably one of the greatest speeches ever heard in the parliament. Abbott said, you should get rid of him, and she said, you're the misogynist. <laughs> um, so there's Peter Slipper having, he's been basically exiled to his office. The government had to... Uh, put one of their own people in the chair, and all of a sudden the numbers flipped again. Uh, and they came back to me and said, oh, Andrew, I remember Albo ringing me up, mate. <laughs> so look, to answer your, I'm being a bit flippant, but to answer your question, I would say to my colleagues, don't trust anyone. Be very careful about what you agree to. You don't have to have a formal deal. That's probably the opening salvo. I mean, having said that, look, there's a lot of good people in camp. There's a lot of good people in political parties. But we live in a we, we live in a country which is beholden to party politics. The whole system is around political parties, and uh, you have a generation of uh, professional politicians in these big political parties. You know, sometimes I feel like we're we're ruled by a political class, and I and I think independence busts that open. Our success isn't because of a political party. Uh, we're not beholden to political party. We can say what we want. Vote how we how we choose. Three years later, we have a we put our our record to the people, and they either uh, say you did a good job or you didn't. I'd, I'd be saying to uh, any new colleagues, just follow your conscience, represent your community, follow your conscience, follow your heart, and the elections will look after themselves. So, Andrew, what you're saying, I think, is you can guarantee confidence and supply to one party so they can govern. But then everything else is on the table for discussion as it comes up. Is that what you're suggesting? That is one way of doing it. It's a pretty sound way of doing it. At the end of the day, we have to have a government. And it may be the case that one or more crossbenchers has to commit to supply and confidence if only to stand up a government. But that doesn't have to be in a a formal deal. It doesn't have to be in return for anything. So you don't need those formal deals. I would hope that naturally we get a government and an opposition, but it may be the case that I have to give some sort of expression of support to at least supply and confidence to stand up, stand up a government. Back to the promise that Julia made that she did not deliver on and make a, a guess that the pokey lobby, the hotels lobby is extremely powerful and makes a lot of donations. I remember in that era, Rob Oakshot, he had every hotel in Cowper was hands off, hands off Rob. So it gets back to your bill, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, how do we stop big money manipulating our politics through donations? Look, regrettably, uh, no 
donor hands over a large amount of money without expecting a return on that investment. And so long as we have this virtually unregulated political donation framework, we have big donors buying big influence. Uh, And a great example is the poker machine lobby. Sorry, the gambling lobby more broadly, but poker machine lobby in particular. They donate huge sums of money to candidates and political parties. And it does buy influence, uh, regrettably. So, yeah, last week I... uh, I moved this private members bill. It includes a very comprehensive set of reforms. I'll just quickly go through them. Lowering the donation threshold, currently it's $14,500, lowering it to $1,000 and aggregating donations. So if someone gives a, a series of smaller donations, once they pass $1,000, the sum of those donations, then it's a declarable donation and the donor has to be declared. Basically, the recipient tells the AEC and the AEC would put it up on its website in as close to real time as practical. I think the bill says two days. Donations would, uh, the definition of donations would be broadened to include gifts. And a gift would be anything, I mean, all the obvious things. Say a donor lets you use his empty warehouse as your campaign headquarters. The value of that donation would obviously be declared as a donation. But also if anyone does something that materially benefits you. So let's say an interest group or an industry group runs a billboard campaign, which materially benefits one party or one candidate. Uh, with its messaging, maybe about a policy, well, then that should be regarded as a donation to that party or candidate. Now, this is important. Introducing a cap of $50,000, which is the total amount of donations a donor can provide during an electoral cycle. So Rio Tinto would be limited to donating total of $50,000, not just to any particular candidate or party, but to all candidates and parties. But I think that's a very significant thing. I mean, 50000 So that's the Clive Palmer oh, no, no, special, is it? Clive Palmer special coming on expenditure. But what it would mean is, like Crown Casino has donated, I think, about $20 million to the political parties over the last decade. That's about $2 million a year. Well, this would limit them to $50,000 donation. Now, my mate uh, Nick Zernifon once said, if someone gives you $1,000, they support you. If they give you $100,000, they bought you. Imagine what a, a, a cap on donations from any one donor of $50,000. That would really rein in the influence of big donors. Talking about Clive Palmer, my building contains a cap on expenditure. Now, the cap is that any one Senate candidate can only spend a maximum of $500,000. Any one reps candidate, a maximum of $250,000. Plus, there's a party limit that no party can spend in total more than $40 million. So here we've got Clive Palmer saying he's going to spend about $100 million. Well, that'd be more than halved. It means here in Clark, I could only spend $250,000. That's a huge amount of money. I'm going to spend less than half of that. But that would really rein, uh, rein people in. Donations would be banned from gambling companies, fossil fuel industries, liquor companies, tobacco industry. Imagine how that would change the landscape if in any one House of Representatives seat, a party or candidate could spend no more than $250,000. Any one Senate candidate or on their campaign, no more than $500,000 and a $40 million party limit. It would really, and and any one donor can only donate a maximum of $50,000. That would transform our landscape. You know what it would mean, Peter and Margot? It would mean candidates would have to get out there and sell themselves on their character, on their policies, It wouldn't be a case of who can afford the most TV ads. 
You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark with Margot Kingston. Our guest is Andrew Wilkie, the Federal Independent Member for Clark in Tasmania. Andrew, can I just raise something that I, I put in my old book now, Not Happy John, that before 1983, everything was private. Then the Labor government brought in public funding and along with public funding, donation disclosure and said this would end corruption. Now, in fact, both parties have taken the public funding and just spent more and more and more on private funding, a lot of it dark money. So is there anything in your bill that ties public funding to not taking more than public funding in private donations or anything like that? Is there any reform to that? Because it, it seems like the major parties are just they're just ripping us off for no reason yeah, look, at the moment because they're, they're still getting mega donations. Yeah, Margot, I didn't go to that. Uh, I, I think that's a very important point you make, um, but it's almost okay. a separate point. I mean, whether or not we even allow political donations in this country, I, I think there is a good argument to be made for banning political donations and allowing only for publicly funded campaigns at a modest level. I think there's a good a good discussion to be had there. We need to be careful, though, because the less someone is allowed to spend, the more it favours incumbents and the harder it is for new people to break in. Uh, I don't want to over-egg this point, but I think it's something to remember. Let, let's, say, let's say every candidate... Every House of Representatives candidate could spend no more than $10,000. Well, that would almost guarantee my re-election because I've got the resources of my office, profile I've built up over more than a decade. Uh, It'd be very hard to unseat me. But there's probably a sweet spot in the middle there somewhere where enough money can be spent to make a newcomer competitive and to be only publicly funded so no one can buy buy influence. There's no limit to the ways we uh, we could reform this. But at the moment, where there is public funding, and it's uh, I think it's about a little bit less than $3, I think, per vote, comes from uh, the AEC for any candidate or party that gets over 4% of the primary vote. First preference vote. Yeah, and um, you know, that ends up being quite a bit of money. Yeah. So there's quite a bit of money comes in through that. Plus, there's no limit on how much people can donate. There's no limit on how much a candidate can spend. It's all, it's become very Americanized. It's all, you know, the richest party yeah. or candidate has has disproportionate power. To have a situation where you can't get lower prescription drug prices because Big Pharma has bought the big parties. And uh, it helps to explain the, the power of the banks, the power of the mining industry, the fossil fuel industry, the gambling industry. What a curious coincidence that the biggest donors have the most influence. I don't know what the difference is between between that and uh, in you know in another country, someone handing over bags of cash. Here, it's it's simpler. You can just transfer it, and it's legal. You don't have to waste money on a paper, round paper bag. Andrew, I want to broaden out our discussion to integrity more generally. You've had a front row seat there in Parliament and in the corridors of power as those various attempts to bring on a federal integrity commission bill from the Greens, from McGowan from Helen Haynes. She's got a bill there that has been put through a very intense consultation process, has garnered a lot of support from legal and human rights analysts and groups around Australia. Yet, of course, the Morrison government has resisted. We've seen the propaganda about kangaroo courts and attacks on New South Wales ICAC. How have you viewed all that? And 
at the end of the day, to what do you attribute the pig-headed resistance to a federal ICAC from the Morrison government and the PM himself? Oh, look, the government's position on this has been uh, shameful, absolutely shameful. I think they went to the 2019 election promising a, an integrity body. And here we are, we've got three more sitting days left before the election. The government hasn't even hasn't even tabled. They, the, the Prime Minister talks about them having having a bill. It hasn't been tabled yet. Mind you, if it was tabled, it was not supportable anyway. It's, it's a very unsatisfactory, toothless integrity agency. So... The community would be quite uh, justified in asking, what have they got to hide? What have they got to hide, given that they weren't prepared to table even their half-baked legislation? To uh, to the credit of the Labor Party, they haven't got a detailed proposal on the table, but they have committed to something much better than the uh, LNP's model. Helen Haynes has got a very good private member's bill, very well considered, and it addresses the concerns that some people have about, say, the New South Wales ICAC model. But she can't get support from the government for it. She, she sure has support from the crossbench. My personal view is I'd even go further than Helen's excellent work. I mean, I, I want something with real teeth. I want a, an integrity agency that can take referrals from anyone and can go after everyone. That's what I want, something with real teeth, with a very broad definition of corruption. There is clearly a, a range of behaviours which are not corruption in a criminal sense, but they are corruption in the minds of most people, improper behaviour. I want to have public hearings. I want, a, I want a corruption agency that can make findings of guilt. I want something more like the New South Wales model, really clean up things. And you know what? Even if, even if things are going well and there's nothing to clean up, the public could have greater confidence that all is going well. You know, in fact, in a perfect world, there is no corruption. There's nothing for the corruption body to do, but it's such a strong deterrent and such a strong like, heartening evidence for the community to know it's there, that there's a cop on the beat, you know, it's keeping everything above board. I mean, how many how many things would, you, would we look at in the last three years? Heavens. I'd probably start with that $30 million land deal for Sydney Airport. One particular minister, I won't mention names, <laughs> probably a few ministers, Probably be a bit restless if there was a uh, such a body in existence. And by the way, the power to look at things retrospectively. You can see why I'm not popular with the government. Andrew, final question for this discussion anyway in the transit zone. I alluded to China and we've seen what many people have described as very over-the-top use of propaganda by Morrison, by Dutton and by Birmingham and Patterson, etc. about China. Used it for partisan reasons, not in the national interest. But how do you see it, drawing upon your Office of National Assessment background and experience, how do you perceive a Prime Minister using the spectre of China like that? And more recently, how do you analyse the frigate laser incident on the part of Beijing? There's no doubt that um, China's behaviour in some ways is entirely unacceptable. You know, their civil rights record, their militarisation of the South China Sea, their belligerent threatening behaviour towards Taiwan... None of that can be defended. But Scott Morrison's weaponising of the issue for political gain is shameful. It's unhelpful. It's completely unfair to the Labor Party. I mean, sure, some parts of the Labor Party have a checkered history with uh, some Chinese people in Australia. But collectively, the Labor Party is rock solid on national security and standing up to uh, the Communist Party in China. And it's, uh, it's very hurtful, too, for 
what, more than a million Chinese Australians. You know, some of these comments go way beyond a commentary about the Chinese Communist Party, which is an odious organisation. You know, some of these comments are actually just racist. They can only be heard as racist comments. So, no, you know, you know who uh, the Prime Minister's in strife when he, when he goes there. And to see Dennis Richardson on the telly the other day, former head of ASIO, getting stuck into Scott Morrison. I mean, Dennis Richardson, I would think, is a natural ally of a conservative government. And even he's, even he's disgusted. Might backfire, you know, on the government. They're not careful. Very, very shameful behaviour. You mentioned Dennis Richardson. How did you see what's been described as an intervention by the current head of ASIO, Mike Burgess? That was quite unprecedented in many ways for him to pop up on the 7.30 report and be very clear about his views. Yeah, it was a, a remarkable uh, turn of events. I mean, these are very professional, a current and former senior public servants. Very, very professional. Not prone to um, troublesome outbursts like when I worked in the public service. For them to speak out the way they have, the people like of their professionalism, are uh, that they're uh, speaking out, heavens, they must be concerned and frustrated. That's just so out of character for, for such people. It's in no one's best interest the way they're behaving, the way they're trying to weaponise national security. And in fact, it was interesting, even uh, just in the, what was today, yesterday, the government announced um, close to a billion dollars in uh, new capabilities and work in uh, Antarctica. And again, in almost the same sentence, they're talking about countering Russia and China. They're trying to have a khaki election, that, that, that's for sure. And they'll get some traction with it. They will get some traction with it. But uh it's not in the national interest, not in the public interest. Before you leave the transit zone, I've got to ask you, as we look to the coming election, how do you anticipate this one's going to go? Will it be just a series of stunts and events, as Scott Morrison's so fond of? Will there be any decent policy discussed? Will we have decent leaders' debates? How are you anticipating the, the very feel, the vibe, if you like, of this coming election? Oh, look, I, I think Scott Morrison will continue trying to uh, focus on the economy and national security. Um, there'll be a lot of stunts, a lot of pork barrelling, a lot of promises. I, I think uh, I think Anthony Albanese would be wise to rise above all that. I would imagine Anthony Albanese needs to be statesmanlike and, and cautious financially and let the government keep barrelling along the way they're, they're doing. I tell you what, I, I fully expect, a, I think a lot of us fully expect a close result. The news poll a little while ago that had uh, Labor on fifty six percent two party preferred. I, I don't think that I don't think that means fifty six percent of the country are happy with Albo and the ALP. I think it means that fifty six percent of the country are unimpressed with the government and Scott Morrison right now. It's going to be almost impossible for Scott Morrison to win a majority next time. Uh, I think if he's still the prime minister after the May election, it'd probably be a minority with conservative crossbenchers backing him up. At the same time, Albo. He's got to win, you probably know this, Peter and Margot, has he got to win eight or nine seats to get a majority? When you drill down seat by seat, it, it's hard to see where those seats are. I mean, I, I think there's every chance we're going to have a, a power-sharing parliament of one kind or another, and that will be in the public interest. You know, you look back to Julia Gillard's uh, parliament, the 43rd parliament, it was power-sharing. It, it was more of a consensus-based government. It was able to, to push through some big policy reforms and issues that wouldn't normally get a run in became big issues. And I, I think the 43rd Parliament, my first Parliament, was a was a very stable, very successful Parliament. And it points to the value of power sharing when you've got a sensible bunch of crossbenchers. And uh, at the moment, we've got a, a sensible bunch of generally, sensible bunch of crossbenchers. And there's some fabulous independent candidates running for election. Heaven, some of them would add so much to the parliament, particularly for the balance of power. 
Andrew Wilkie, thank you so much for being with us in The Zone. It's been a very interesting conversation and we appreciate you making time for us. No, I appreciate that, Peter. And uh, it, when I say great to see, I'm, I'm obviously watching Margot on a computer screen here. Uh, I haven't seen Margot since the Not Happy John days in Bennelong, 2004 federal election when, let me see, we quadrupled the Greens vote, forced John Howard into, I think he finished below 50, I'm not sure. It was certainly, I think after the election it was 54%, so it was notionally a marginal seat and that prompted Maxine McHugh to have a go at the next election. Uh, at which time she toppled John Howard. So, uh, Margot, I think you and I were bit players in a in a very historic, very historic project. The Not Happy John campaign was triggered by my book, Not Happy John, and one of the biggest supporters of the Not Happy John campaign was someone called John Valder, a former president of the Liberal Party. So ah. I just think this whole centrism thing, you know, it's, it's back in vogue, and, and um, God, I'm excited. <laughs> Anyone who claims they know what's going to happen on election night, oh, I don't know. No one knows what's going to happen in May. Fascinating. Andrew, thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you so much, Peter. And Margot, thank you. Great to see you again. Talk again soon. Bye. Pleasure. Our guest in the Transit Zone this time, Andrew Wilkie, Federal Independent Member for Clark in Tasmania. This edition of the Transit Zone is just part of a new series in the zone around aspects of democracy here in Australia and around the world as the next federal election in Australia approaches. If you'd like to email us at The Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We always welcome your comments, your questions, and your ideas for new podcast episodes. transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening, and please do join us again soon right here in The Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit transit zone. zone.